Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Oh, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado. You've got your regular hosts, Jeff and Brian, with you today. And today is, I believe, the third in an ongoing series of podcasts regarding the traditions of men versus the Word of God. I say third because the first podcast kind of dealt with the subject in general. The second podcast focused on Catholicism, particularly Roman Catholicism. Today we're going to focus on Protestantism. Uh, Brian, any uh, thoughts? I'll just say that, yeah, this in our eyes is kind of a logical progression when you think about Catholicism really kind of being the oldest mainstream religion. And then out of Catholicism came several other Protestant religions. So, yeah, look forward to speaking about this and uh, kind of comparing what they teach to God's Word. And admittedly, this is going to be a, a little bit of a challenge because under the general canopy of Protestantism, we have a pretty wide divergence of beliefs among you know, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, etc. So what we'll try to do is go back and review a little bit of the history of the Protestant Reformation and offer some observations regarding relatively common beliefs and practices that tend to characterize most Protestant groups. Oh, starting off with Protestant, basically the underlying word into protest, we see uh, origins back in the 1500s with Martin Luther and his protests against the Catholic Church and the resulting Reformation movement, or sometimes called the Protestant Reformation movement. If you dig a little bit into Martin Luther's background, roughly at the age of 20, he obtained a complete copy of the Bible from the university where he was studying and developed a great love and respect for it. Unfortunately, after he entered the monastery, he saw that there were a lot of uh, evils you know, within the monastery, uh, left that, became a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, translated the Bible into German so the common people could read it and interpret it. And actually, even he composed some music that is sometimes uh, commonly encountered in uh, Protestant worship services. The song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is one of his more famous songs. But more importantly, from a historical perspective, in 1517, he assembled a list of 95 propositions for academic discussion or academic disputation of theses, the 95 theses. Uh, nailed it to the door of uh, the church building there in Wittenberg. His goal was to defend the various assertions that he was making. Uh, here's a quote. Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology and Ordinary Lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen, Martin Luther. That was the uh, prefix, if you will, his list of 95 theses. Now, these were things that he wanted to discuss. Uh, in, in many ways, as we'll see in a few moments, these were focusing on abuses you know, within the Catholic church. Of course, him protesting it, if you will, or at least getting it on the table for uh, discussion, you know, certainly sparked uh, a major protest, if you will. Uh, as I've indicated, you know, these 95 theses were you know, sent or posted, if you will, uh, as, a, as a challenge. You know, let's talk about it. You know, let's talk about what the Bible has to say with respect to various uh, practices of the Catholic Church. And again, that's 1517, uh, October the 31st, a date many consider to be the start of the Protestant Reformation, sometimes commemorated as Reformation Day. 
one of the big deals, if you will, that, that Luther had problems with the church was what's called selling of indulgences. Uh, basically, that was the main focus or a key focus of his document mentioned 35 times. Basically, an indulgence was a way that the Catholic Church could raise money. The Pope allowed people to purchase these letter of indulgences to allow them to obtain the forgiveness of sins for themselves at some point in the future. You could purchase these indulgences. You could purchase the forgiveness of sins for yourself, for a loved one, uh, for those who have died uh, to reduce their time in purgatory. Martin Luther, in contrast, contended that paying money could not take away the punishment for sin. Of course, in so doing, he questioned the power of the Pope. He espoused his beliefs in the remission of sins, the granting of pardons. Also questioned the doc Catholic doctrine on the merits of the saints, uh, those who were uh, had died and were elevated into the sainthood uh, after death. And, of course, what he had posted on the door was quickly, you know, reprinted, translated, distributed, you know, basically throughout Europe, triggering, as we've noted, the Protestant movement or the Protestant Reformation as an attempt to correct certain abuses within the Catholic Church. And as a result, started relying or proclaimed a reliance solely on Scripture as a source of proper belief. Uh, and that faith and not good works brought salvation. Now, Brian, part of the problem of that was he focused on specific problems the Catholic Church was having, that these reforms in some ways did not go far enough and did not necessarily go far enough back in time to, quote-unquote, you know, fully, truly restore beliefs as found in the Scriptures. So, uh, you know, just a little bit of, uh, you know, how the Protestant Reformation at least got kicked off by Martin Luther. Brian, you want to add anything? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you think about last episode, we were talking about how Catholics established the Pope as the authority, you know, the head on earth, and that they have an office that consists of some of these bishops and the Pope to make laws. And anytime that you have something like that, when you look at the history of the Catholic Church, well, there were all kinds of bishops that were making their own laws. And it still continues until this day. In fact, I thought it was interesting. I was just reading an article this morning, and it talked about several bishops in Germany voted collectively to recognize homosexual marriages. And, of course, that directly conflicts with what the Catholic office and the Pope believe and teach. So now we're starting to kind of see this shift within the Catholic Church. But to me, it's just the symptom of a larger problem. And that is when you allow several different elements of your religion to make laws, then inevitably there's going to be a splintering compared to using the Bible as your standard. And that's not to say that, you know, the Lord's church couldn't have these same issues. It does. But you certainly see it much more in religions where, once again, you have several different members, if you will, of that religion that can make laws. So anyhow. Yeah, good points. Well, Brian, you want to talk to us about what happened after Martin Luther got things kicked off? Yeah, he kind of lit the fire, right, as we might say, and, and started this Protestant movement, as you mentioned. And so, you know, it started in Germany. But after that, the spread of all of this material was really kind of facilitated by the printing press that those of you that may know the history of the printing press in Gutenberg allowed and kind of the timing was great because it provided the means for the rapid dissemination of not just the 95 theses but all these other materials and so to martin luther's credit he recognized something was off in the catholic church and therefore once again wanted to talk about it protested those kinds of things and it did spark a fire in the sense that there were many other people that started to question what catholics were practicing well once that occurred, the Roman Catholic Church responded with a counter-reformation, if you will, initiated by the Council of Trent. And so they put a lot of effort into battling Protestantism, if you will, and they had this order of Jesuits that really were trained to fight against this Protestant movement. Well, in general, Northern Europe, with the exception of, of most of Ireland, came under the influence of Protestantism. And Southern Europe remained pretty much loyal to Roman Catholicism. 
But Central Europe was really a site of fierce conflict, if you study that history. In fact, it culminated in the Thirty Years' War, if you've heard of that, which really kind of left that part of Europe devastated. So when you think about all of these different Protestant groups, and Jeff mentioned early on, it is a broad umbrella. So just some of the religions under that umbrella would include the Amish, the Anglican Communion, the Assemblies of God, the Baptists, the Lutheran Church, the Mennonites, the Methodists, the Presbyterian Church, the Quakers, and really several others. But these are kind of the more common religions that our listeners may recognize. Well, when you look at all of these different Protestant groups, one thing that became really common was for them to establish their own creeds. And so when you think about the Lutheran Church, they have their Augsburg Confession. They also continue to endorse some of the Catholic creeds, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostle Creed and others. Look at the Baptist Church. They have the Southern Baptists have their Baptist faith and message. The Reformed Baptist Church has the Baptist Confession of Faith. The American Baptist Association has the Standard Manual and their doctrinal statement. So, you know, there's splinters within the Baptist Church that each have their own creeds. If you look at the Methodists, their creed is the Book of Discipline. Presbyterian utilize the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then many of these also endorse the use of some of these Catholic creeds, like once again, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles, the Council of Trent, and so forth. So much like we talked about in our last episode, when you ask people that are within these religions, well, why do you need a creed? Why do you have a creed? Why not just follow the Bible? Well, they'll give you different reasons. And much like the Catholic Church, some will say, well, the Bible isn't complete. Therefore, there needed to be some additional doctrine or, hey, you know, times change. We need to change. The Bible needs to change with the times. That's why we have these creeds. Or, hey, we're just giving guidance in our creeds. We're we're telling our members they need to study the Bible, but we're also helping them to properly interpret it. So there's many different reasons why people have creeds and doctrinal statements. The other thing that became very common within these Protestant religions was the doctrine of Calvinism. And even though that doctrine is ascribed to John Calvin, it really started, I think it was in the third century, with Augustine of Hippo, who was a bishop in the Catholic Church that espoused most of the doctrines that John Calvin believed in and taught. And then after John Calvin died, his followers basically took what he had been teaching and created five tenets that they became known as the doctrine of Calvinism. Now, this is a very damning set of doctrines because it really teaches things like original sin. For instance, total depravity, where it's a belief that human beings are so affected by original sin, so in other words, Adam's sin, that they are always sinful and have no ability to choose to be good. And so just one example of how Calvinism is interwoven into Protestant creeds, if you look in, for instance, the Lutheran Church under the Augsburg Confession, Article Number 2, quote here says, It is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all men who were born according to the course of nature are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclination from their mother's womb, and are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this inborn sickness and hereditary sin is truly sin and condemns to the eternal wrath of God all those who are not born again through baptism and the Holy Spirit. So when you think about how powerful that belief is, it's basically saying every human being that's born is born in sin. And not only that, they're incapable of doing what's right They just want to do evil. And so, therefore, that's why you can justify practices like infant baptism. You want to cleanse that original sin. Well, there's other tenets. We won't go into more detail on those because we actually had a series on Calvinism, episodes 83 through 87, where Jeff and I really went through each one of these tenets. So if you're interested in learning more about that. But let me just touch on, besides total depravity, the other ones just very briefly, and then we'll move on. The second one in that is unconditional election. So, you know, since human beings have no free will, they're wholly inclined to do evil. God has chosen some to be counted as righteous without any conditions. So in other words, God has already determined who will be saved and who will be lost. That's unconditional election. Limited atonement. Only those whom God has particularly chosen can be saved by Christ's redeeming work. The rest will be lost. 
then irresistible grace, the grace that God extends to human beings to affect their election, cannot be refused because God has foreordained it. So in other words, those who God has chosen are pulled in, if you will. They are drawn to the truth through God's irresistible grace. They can't help but follow it. And then the final is perseverance of the saints. So, you know, since God has decreed who will be saved, who, who is the quote-unquote elect, and they cannot resist his grace, well, they're also unconditionally preserved, if you will, and eternally secure. So anyhow, I would encourage you once again, if you haven't really kind of dived into this doctrine, look at episodes 83 through 87. Now, why is this important? Well, because what it does is it really drastically changes the truth of the Bible. And so you want to make sure when you look at the Protestant history and you look at any of these religions that we were talking about, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and so forth, to understand why they believe in these tenets and how it conflicts with what God's Word teaches. Jeff? Uh, And as you said, related to that is what we sometimes call the plan of salvation, you know, how to become a Christian. When you look at the beliefs, particularly of Calvinism, which... Various Protestants to a degree or another may adopt some or most or all. Basically, it reflects a change to the New Testament plan of salvation. For example, if we look at the role of baptism within a lot of Protestant organizations, as we've already mentioned, they will baptize, sprinkle water on infants, again, as we mentioned, because of original sin, at least according to the Methodist discipline. Uh, since infants are guilty, uh, quote unquote, since infants are guilty of original sin, then they are proper subjects of baptism, seeing in the ordinary way they cannot be saved unless this be washing away by baptism. It has already been proved that this original sin cleaves to every child of man, and thereby they are children of wrath and liable to eternal damnation. End quote. Lutherans. So now, quote unquote, of, quote, for now children are to be baptized and receive the token of the new covenant, the seal of the righteousness of life. Infant baptism, again, for original sin. Neither concept taught within scriptures. Uh, Within the Bible, the pattern is baptism is for the forgiveness of sins that have been committed by the individual. Acts 2.38, Acts 22, verse 16, 1 John 3, verse 4. Not inherited sin, not inherited guilt. And that the proper subjects of New Testament baptism are those who hear the gospel, believe in Jesus as the Christ, repent of their sins, confess Jesus as deity. Only having done that can they be baptized. Infants cannot do that. Infants do not commit sin, therefore, hence, they do not meet these qualifications. For example, Romans 10.10, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Mark 16.16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he does not believe will be condemned. Again, infant baptism not taught in the scriptures, and yet a prominent belief of many Protestant organizations. Uh, so the subject of baptism gets changed. A subject in terms of who is subject to baptism. Uh, the mode of baptism, you know, immersion, sprinkling, pouring, most Protestant denominations, if they practice baptism, which some do not, do a lot of them will say, you know, immersion is not necessary. Uh, at least according to Luther's catechism, Christ does not specify the mode of baptism. It may be performed in any one of three ways, namely by sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. One mode is just as valid as another. Presbyterian Confession of Faith has something similar. That's not what the Bible teaches, though. The Greek word, you know, transliterated as baptism or to be baptized, is to, the basic definition is to immerse, submerge, uh, to overwhelm. Uh, John 3.23, John went to an area that had much water to baptize. Likewise, uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 38, Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water. Philip then baptized the eunuch, necessary inference, uh, immersed him. Romans 6, verse 4, uh, the, the picture that, that uh, baptism in water has is a burial. For we were buried with him through baptism unto death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12, we're buried with Christ through baptism. Hence, burial, hence, immersion. Again, a lot of Protestant groups get the mode wrong, according to the New Testament pattern. 
But perhaps one of the most important aspects of baptism is why. Why, why do it? Uh, just about all Protestant denominations, if they practice baptism, will say it's something a saved person can do if they want to. Uh, a lot of them will say it's not required. Some might go even as far as say, yes, it's commanded that it's something a Christian should do. But it is not for initial salvation. It is not for the forgiveness of sin, they would say, according to the Baptists. They certainly would emphasize you know, baptism as immersion, but they would say it is not essential for salvation. Well, what's the New Testament pattern? Well, John 3, verse 5. Jesus most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. First Peter 3.21, baptism saves us. Acts 2.38, baptism results in forgiveness of sin. Acts 22.16, baptism washes away sins. Of course, based on the blood of Jesus and his sacrificial atoning death. So we have baptism within Protestants, the wrong person, infants, the wrong mode, sprinkling or pouring, the wrong reason, not for salvation. So we have you know, a major distortion, if you will, to the plan of salvation as revealed in the New Testament. Brian? Yeah, those are really good passages. And as you mentioned, it really takes all of those beliefs, those erroneous beliefs and major tenets of these Protestant religions and really kind of turns them on their head because the scriptures are actually very, very clear. And another major tenet that we see with a lot of Protestant religions is justification by faith alone. So in other words, baptism isn't even required. In fact, if you look at one of the most common false doctrines in the world today, not just with Protestant religions, but religions in general, is that baptism is not required for salvation. Yet, when you look in the book of Acts, Every single time you read about a conversion, I'm thinking of like the Ethiopian eunuch and the Philippian jailer and Lydia and her household and Cornelius and his household. You go read through all of those in the book of Acts, and in every single case, baptism was not only required, but it was administered for the forgiveness of sins. And as Jeff touched on earlier, as far as it's in the likeness of the death of Jesus. So just as Jesus died, buried, and rose, when you are buried and immersed in water and you rise to walk in newness of life, it all just makes sense. And so the scriptures are very clear there. But let's just take a look at why there is this belief within the Protestant religions that you are justified by faith alone. Well, if you look at the Lutheran doctrine, and here's a quote, justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ is held to be the central doctrine of the word of God. Well, why is that? So you can make that statement, but where's the proof? And one thing we talk about a lot, you think about proving any spiritual principle, you need to have book, chapter, and verse. And that's why if anybody makes a statement like this, always challenge them and say, well, where in the Bible do you find that? Now, in the case of the Lutheran church, they added the word alone to Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. So if you look in the Bible, Romans 3.28, and I, I use the New King James Version, so I'll just read that here. It says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. They added the word alone. So in the German Bible, it'll say, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the deeds of the law. Well, if you look in the original Greek, whether it's the New King James, King James, or any of those, you won't see the word alone in there. That was something they added to really justify this belief, again, that you it only requires faith. If you look at the Methodist discipline, it says here, justification of faith alone is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Well, it might be full of comfort, but where in the Bible is that statement supported? Well, let's look at what the Bible does say. James chapter 2, verse 24. Here you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So the scriptures teach us that as Christians, we must have a working faith. God doesn't want us to simply believe. It needs to be a working faith. And so when it comes to justification by faith, and so what I've been talking about up to this point is just you know the idea that you can be saved by belief only or justified by faith only. But you, in this particular case, they're saying that, let's just say even after you're baptized, 
you don't have to do any work. You're, you're saved and justified by your faith only. Well, if that were true, then the devils would be saved. Over in James chapter 2 and verse 19, here James says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So under that reasoning, you would have to say that these demons were saved. That would make no sense, right? So Jesus really summed it up best, though, I think in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? So in other words, they believed and they practiced many things in the name of Christ. But notice what Jesus says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So as he said in verse 21, only those who do the will of the Father in heaven will be considered faithful and will be saved, if you will, in the end. And so this idea of justification by faith alone just cannot be found in the scriptures. Jeff? Oh, and in some ways, this is almost like a swing of the pendulum, you know, a backlash, if you will, against Catholicism. It was, you know, selling these indulgences. You could, you could pay money and get forgiveness of sin. And allegedly, you know, you could get forgiveness of sin via doing penance and, and other, you know, quote-unquote good works. Of course, the Protestants looked at that and go, no, that's like trying to, you know, earn your salvation. Admittedly, you know, Ephesians talks about, you know, not of works lest we should boast. So they swung the pendulum in some ways to the other extreme saying, well, you know, works, anything you do has nothing to do with your salvation. Of course, baptism gets wrapped up in, in that. But, yeah, but swung the pendulum kind of, kind of too far and missed the middle ground, so to speak, that it's faith working through love. It's an active faith, not a dead faith, uh, according to James. That kind of takes us, you know, beyond the plan of salvation, if you will, and kind of sets the stage for various other beliefs, some involving uh, worship, uh, you know, worship of God. For example, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper. Uh, at least according to Lutherans, for example, it is a sacrament or a religious ceremony uh, through which forgiveness of sins is promised, uh, according to the Lutheran Catechism. There's a question about, you know, how frequently should it be done, for example. Um, again, New Testament pattern portrays the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of the Lord's death, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. It proclaims the Lord's death until he returns, uh, First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty six. It has nothing to do with forgiveness of sin. You know that requires at least to initially become a Christian, the act of baptism, Acts two thirty eight. Uh, if you are a Christian and you sin, that requires the act of repentance. But if you have sin, you can't partake of the Lord's supper and be forgiven. It just you know the New Testament doesn't portray that that it works that way. Frequency of the Lord's supper. Uh, some various Protestant groups will celebrate it annually, uh, sometimes monthly, sometimes at the same time as the Passover, etc. At least according to the New Testament pattern, uh, Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, contextually, uh, the partake of the Lord's Supper. So now we're starting to see some you know, departures in terms of the worship of the church, uh, as taught in the New Testament versus Protestantism. Uh, Brian, your turn. Yeah, and it's another area where we also see, as you've been touching on, you know, the Catholic Church and the influence in these Protestant religions. So even though Martin Luther and others protested or were against some of the practices of the Catholic Church, they sure kept several of them, like sacraments and the whole concept around that. But as you pointed out, of course, the scriptures teach us differently. And it really also applies to instrumental music. So one of the things that we see change from the first century on, it was still a cappella voice music. There were really no musical instruments at all, but a few hundred years after the first century, somebody came up with the idea, hey, why not have some instruments add to the music? Or, hey, you know what? Under the old law, they used some instruments. Well, let's, why don't we introduce them under the new law? 
Now, it's interesting, you know, as we've been talking about, not just in this podcast, but in the last one, anytime you have religious practices that were established several hundred years after the first century, don't we logically have to ask, well, wait a minute, if they didn't practice it for a few hundred years, then wouldn't be introducing it down the road be wrong just at a base level? You would think so, right? But we see Baptists and Methodists and many others use instrumental music in worship. And their argument, once again, is, well, instruments were used in worship in the Old Testament. Okay, well, if that logic held, then why didn't we see them being used in the first century, the second century, the third century? Because even those that deviated from the truth realized you shouldn't use musical instruments. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.19 that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we are to sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. And we have a similar passage in Colossians 3.16 where it says that we should, you know, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and all wisdom, and then it includes teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So both of those passages make it clear. And, you know, Jeff, it kind of makes sense to me. I mean, I've always looked at it this way, that, you know, when God gave us commands on how we should worship, then it rules everything else out, number one. Number two, because of that, he's told us, you know, to sing spiritual songs. It rules out instruments. And to me, it makes sense because if you think about, you know, when you look at the old law, it involved many physical elements like sacrifices, feasts, the use of instruments, whereas the law of Christ is more spiritually focused, if you will. Like, you know, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 talks about how we offer the sacrifice of praise to our God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so think about spiritual songs and making melody in our heart. Well, that fits in there, doesn't it, as it relates to spiritual worship versus physical worship and animal sacrifices and those kinds of things. Good point. And, you know, even across, I think, I don't want to say all Protestant denominations, but certainly most, you know, the use of instruments, um, you know, what might be termed contemporary worship, stage performers, sometimes uh, elaborate sound systems, lights, etc., you know, with some groups even taking it to a level of almost like a rock concert. Certainly not according to the pattern as we see in the New Testament, where, you know, as you said, Ephesians 5, speak to one another. It's a reciprocal thing. We're singing and making melody in our heart, not on our harps, <laughs> to, to sort of coin an old, old expression. Yeah. You know, Brian, something that is also kind of fundamental to the Protestant, Protestantism is this concept of denominations and denominationalism, and that these are all various branches of Christ's church. And that denomination, it's an okay kind of thing. Yeah, the Methodists might have some differences from the Lutherans, it might have some difference from the Baptists, and... Yeah, you might prefer, you know, Baptist worship as opposed to Episcopalian, whatever. But, you know, we're all Christians. You know, we're all going to heaven. Certainly that's what, you know, the Lutherans claim, the Methodists claim, etc. But when we start looking at scriptures, for instance, New Testament pattern, you know, Jesus Christ promised to establish one church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. My church, singular. Uh, Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. We are one body not multiple bodies. Uh, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, we being many are one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 talks about one body as well. You know, more to the point with Jesus's last night with his disciples before being crucified the next day, he prayed for them to be united, prayed for them to be one as he and the Father were one. Uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul, talking to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He had to get on their case. And let me quote that one. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. 
which in many ways mirrors what we see today. I am of Luther. I am of Calvin. I am of Wesley. You know, I am of the Baptist persuasion. I am of the Episcopalian persuasion. I am of the Amish persuasion, etc. Contrary to what the New Testament declares, we should strive for unity, not strive for, quote-unquote, join the church of your choice kind of perspective. Brian, back to you. Yeah, you know, in our first podcast, we were talking about what you had mentioned as it relates to denominations. And one of the shifts that we see in our society here in the United States, at least, is a rise of a lot of community churches. And we were talking about in that first episode of this series, you know, how community churches came to be and what do they actually believe? Are they Protestant religions? What are they? Well, they're actually a blend of a lot of these. And much the same point you made, Jeff, as it relates to people believing, well, that, you know, all of these are just branches of the same vine, if you will. Well, when you look at the history of the community church, you had a lot of small communities here in the United States who did not have the population or finances to support different denominations like Lutheran, Methodist, so forth. So they kind of pooled their resources and became interdenominational. So in other words, they decided to have cooperation among various Christian denominations. And that's how you ended up with a scenario where you'd have like one leader that guides a church. The members have varying beliefs, but they just agree to disagree. We might call that unity and diversity. And then they, you know, reach out to the community and establish ministries and, you know, partnerships and all of that. And next thing you know, it doesn't look anything like the church that we read about in the New Testament. So we kind of see this continued evolution, if you will, of these religious bodies into now just like blended community churches. And so not sure if our listeners that are in other parts of the world are seeing that, but if not, you will, I'm sure, because it's sort of a logical progression down that path. The last section we want to talk about and then we'll answer some questions that have been asked about Protestant religions. And that is when you think about major tenets of the Protestant religions, there are also major differences in what their authority is for what they practice. So as we touched on earlier, you know, Protestant religions have their own creeds and, and use them for their doctrine. So for instance, the Methodist we were talking about, you know, the Methodist discipline, and there's a quote from the discipline, Article 362, that says the Methodist discipline gives rules, doctrines, and regulations governing all procedures and regulations governing the church. And all ministers are obligated to observe every part of it in his district. So that's a rule, if you will, that they have for those who would teach for the Methodist church. When it comes to the Baptist church, this is according to Hiscock's Standard Manual of Baptist Churches. It says the members are not required to subscribe or pledge conformity to any creed form, but are expected to yield substantial agreement to that which the church with which they unite has adopted. So if you think about that statement, it's kind of contradicting itself, right? It's saying, well, you know, if you're a member, you don't have to subscribe or pledge to any creed form, but you are expected to yield substantial agreement. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. You just said, I don't have to pledge conformity, but you're telling me I have to have agree. Anyways, just confusing. Well, what does the Bible say? Matthew 15, Jesus talked about this. This has been a problem since Jesus was on the earth. He says in verse seven of Matthew 15, hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse nine, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is just an example of where, like Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? It's either you need to follow what Jesus taught or what men teach, but don't honor him with your lips, Jesus says. If you're not going to follow what he says, and instead you're going to teach and follow doctrines and the commandments of men. Colossians 2.8, similar thought, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So we touched on in our last podcast, 2 Peter 1.3, how God has given us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So we don't need creeds. We don't need anything else but the Bible because it contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we do want to be careful, as it says in Colossians 2, not allow ourselves to be cheated by this philosophy, by this tradition of men, which are, as it says, they're just basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. And then finally, there's a warning in Galatians chapter 1. Paul here is talking to the churches of Galatia. And he was amazed that they quickly removed themselves from the gospel and started to follow other teachings of men. And so Paul said, you know, if we, this is verse 8 of Galatians 1, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. A curse. So Paul repeats that to really emphasize, even if an angel from heaven tried to bring some other doctrine to you, you reject that because God has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You do not need anything else from men. So Jeff, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And pretty damning towards any other creeds or doctrines of men. Well, and most of these uh, Protestant groups will have, and they may call it different things. They may, they may call it a, uh, statement of faith that lists or you know articulates uh the, the the key things regarding you know nature of god nature of jesus salvation etc it's almost like a summary you know these are the essentials you must you know conform to these unfortunately those are like a a limited abstraction from either what the bible says so it's only partially reflecting what the bible says or as we've noted, in some cases, it's contrary to what the Bible says, you know, often in terms of, you know, Calvinism, you know, as an example. So we have people rallying around these statements of faith instead of looking to the Bible, even though admittedly, a lot of these groups will profess to believe in the Bible, to profess that the Bible is the sole guide for their practice, you know, as opposed to the Catholic Church with pronouncement from the Pope, etc., but even within that, you know, solely relying on the scripture, sometimes they they add their own summaries in addition to the Bible, um, which I think, Brian, for our listeners, points out the importance of really understanding how to read and study the scriptures. And to that end, I might refer our listeners back to podcasts number 101 and 102 that we gave on how to properly study the Bible in kind of a two-part series. So I think, Brian, that takes us to a few sample questions as we begin to near the end of our podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Like we try to do every podcast, we want to take a look at some questions that have been submitted related to our subject. And the first one comes to us, Jeff, for you from Marco. And he says, among Christians, there are so many doctrinal disputes Many died making wars because of different opinions. Why does God not intervene to clear up our understanding, avoiding wars and disputes? He goes on to say, just after the Protestant Reformation, 8 million Christians slaughtered each other because God did not communicate the correct doctrine clearly to them. Historically, you know, people who do claim, did claim to be Christians, you know, disciples of Christ, fought physically, declared war on each other, slaughtered each other, um, and to include things like the, you know, 30 years war, I think you mentioned earlier with the Protestants, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, etc. So let me pause and comment on that briefly. Yes, historical fact, alleged Christians fighting, killing fellow Christians. Now, on the one hand, the, we certainly need to distinguish false teachers, false doctrines, per such warnings we find within the scriptures, like Matthew 7, verse 15, that talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, um, warns us that there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. However, within the New Testament scriptures, there's absolutely no authorization for physical warfare, you know, throwing alleged heretics into prison, burning them at the stake, 
you know, etc. It's just not authorized. John chapter 18, verse 36 comes to mind, where Jesus declares, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not swords, tanks, airplanes, you know, the power of prison, etc., are not carnal, worldly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. Certainly we read about armor and swords and shields in Ephesians chapter 6 as figurative language. Uh, Ephesians 6 verse 13, the whole armor of God. Verse 16, the shield of faith. Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, you know, should we distinguish false doctrine and false teachers from that which is true? Absolutely. Do we have any authorization to engage the power of the state or to raise up our own armies to go out and convert or kill heretics? No, absolutely not. So, all that understood, uh, coming back around to, you know, how come God didn't intervene <laughs> and, you know, communicate to people, you know, correct doctrine? Well, several verses within the New Testament, according to what has already been revealed in the New Testament, let's look at some of them. Uh, Brian, you want to do Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3? I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Sure. So here it says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. He point all things. Similar sentiment in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some translations have accurately handling or correctly handling the word of truth. Next chapter, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 17. All scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And finally, uh, Brian, you want to do Jude, verse 3? Here it says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Right. I guess the key point I want to, want to make in, in bringing forward these particular scriptures is that God has already revealed to us you know, what is needed for us to have proper, true doctrine. Hence our need to study the scriptures. Hence our need not to add to or take from or twist scriptures responsibility to properly harmonize all that's said on a particular topic, you know, considering the context, definition of words, audience, etc., and to avoid our own preconceived biases as we search for truth. So, again, given scripture, we shouldn't expect God to periodically, if I want to use the term this way, but whap us upside the head, Say, hey, get back on the right track here. Or a big sign in the skies that declares, you know, this group as opposed to that group is the right group because they're teaching this right. Well, no, it's on us to study Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God to determine what is true and what is false. Any thoughts before uh, we go to your question? Yeah, that's exactly right. The Bible doesn't give us authority to have physical war to be able to get someone to believe the truth or to contend for the faith in that physical way. So anyhow, appreciate those thoughts. Okay, so your question comes from Kane. I have a few questions. Uh, first, my girlfriend of two years is a Baptist. Now, at her church, they have and use instruments in service, musical instruments. They only commune, which I assume is Lord's Supper, once every month, and she leads her choir during worship. As me being Church of Christ, I understand these things are not the way a church should conduct itself. She was baptized at a very young age. I was baptized at 17. Uh, she was baptized at 11. She told me at that time she really didn't feel anything. 
Bible says once a person is baptized, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I feel myself receive the gift and felt the old me die and the new me rose. Second, women have any leadership role when it comes to leading worship. So, Brian, you got several things in there to kind of tease apart, uh, you know, salvation, instruments, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and women. So I was going to say you need to probably focus on some parts of that. Yeah, yeah, lots going on at her Baptist church, isn't it? So, um, right. so first, you know, I commend Cain for his desire to do what's right according to God's word and really kind of noticing things that are out of place. You know, when you think about Cain's statement that the law of Christ must dictate all we do spiritually, exactly right. And so when it comes to, you know, that gift of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it's not talking about a literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized, we receive the forgiveness of sins, as Acts 2.38 mentions, and also Acts 22.16, where it talks about washing away our sins. And then we also are given the gift of eternal life that we see mentioned in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Now, you can feel things when you're baptized. Certainly feelings of joy after baptism are normal. And I'm thinking of Acts chapter 8, you know, in verse 39, where it talked about the Ethiopian eunuch after he was baptized, went on his way rejoicing. That's perfectly normal, but that's not because the Holy Spirit has now indwelled us. In fact, the Holy Spirit dwells in us through God's Word, and we see that in passages like Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. So we just want to be careful that we don't mistake those feelings for the Holy Spirit indwelling us as it's contrary to God's Word. Now, his second, or one of the other questions he asked is, can women have any leadership role when it comes to leading a worship? And the answer is no. A woman is not to usurp the authority of man in the assembly. We know that from passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. And we have a really good article on our website that I'll encourage everyone to read entitled 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 and exegesis, where really it's a detailed study of this subject. And you can find that article by clicking on the letter W on our homepage and scrolling down to the section on women leaders. And then Jeff, we also did a podcast with Alan Hitchin about women leadership it's episode 89 and 91 the woman's role on our podcast page there's a topical index near the bottom after the podcast tool or device with different topics and if you scroll down to the topic of women you can find those episodes excellent thank you for that and so the final thought here is you know he had also mentioned the use of instruments of worship only partaking of the Lord's Supper, if that's what he's talking about for communing every, you know, once every month. Those are also subjects that the Bible clearly touches. You know, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 talks about, you know, coming together on the first day of the week to break bread, right, to partake of that communion. And of course, as we talked about, Colossians 3.16, other passages make it clear that we are to make melody in our heart and not use musical instruments. So Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting thing that had several things kind of, kind of woven into it which hopefully we've given our listeners enough uh, food for thought. And of course, at the end, we'll, we'll reference some uh, additional material in our website. Uh, it looks like I get the next question. Yeah, this one comes from Steve, and he says, I've been a born-again Christian for over 52 years now, love the Lord, and understand that it is by the grace of God and Christ's work on the cross alone that affords me salvation. I kneel at the cross with open hands, knowing that I bring nothing and am totally dependent on the grace of God for salvation and guidance in my life. He goes on to say, I've read a certain passage a multitude of times in my life, and for some reason, this year it's turned out, or it has turned out to be one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. The passage is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, regarding how many will say in that day, haven't I done this and that in your name? And then Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. While I understand that salvation is not through works, it appears that these people pleaded with the Lord, believed that they had a relationship with him, thought they were saved, and find out that they were not. I know many false teachers are out there teaching a prosperity gospel, positive thinking gospel, works gospel, and every permutation thereof. And I could see those people falling into this group. However, I was wondering if there was something I was missing as I get weak in the knees just thinking that I could remotely be in this group. I stand on the fact that it is faith in Christ alone that brings salvation, and there is nothing we can do to earn it. 
The scary part about this passage is that it appears that many people uh, will think or believe that they have a sincere relationship with the Lord, but in fact, they do not. And then he says or asks, what is your interpretation of this passage? Uh, and honestly, we do get a fair number of questions submitted to the website that are in this same theme that in essence say, you know, I believe in faith only. I believe in once saved, always saved. I found this passage that seems to contradict that. And like in his case, he came across, you know, Matthew chapter 7. Other people come across like James chapter 2, verse 24, which clearly says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. In fact, I think some people say that in most translations, the only place in the entire New Testament where faith and only are found together is James 2.24, where it says, not by faith only. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. In many ways, it kind of also boils down to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So we, we want to proclaim Jesus as our Savior. Do we want to proclaim Jesus as our Lord, Master, someone we need to obey? Um, some people have, have a problem with that. You know, kind of in a sense, you know, the, the reference of uh, uh, Matthew chapter 7, I think boils down to what we call the plan of salvation, which we've talked about earlier, that there is a pattern in the New Testament for people to become Christians, and that many religious groups have short-circuited that pattern and teach less than what that pattern is, or have added some other things to that pattern and proclaim a way to salvation that's not according to the New Testament pattern. And of course, I'm referring to things like, you know, immersion in water in order to have the forgiveness of sins, which gets substituted out for faith only, or gets substituted out for what's often called the sinner's prayer. And honestly, from a Matthew chapter 7 perspective, I, I cannot help but wonder if a lot of people who believe they're saved Christians and have a relationship with Christ and are honest and sincere and trying to, you know, please God, etc., like this person, are not really saved because they haven't done what Jesus said to be saved, you know, followed the, as we said, the pattern as revealed in, in the New Testament. And, and it's very sad, but nonetheless, I, I think that's what, what the truth of the matter is, you know, at least with respect to the New Testament pattern. Brian, any comments? Yeah, not knowing Steve's heart, you know, one thing we've talked about in the past is that sometimes people come to the scriptures with this preconceived notion, and it could be because they've heard it over and over and over from maybe the pulpit and the church they're a member of, faith only, faith only, only faith, you know, and then they don't take the time to really examine the scriptures and see, well, baptism is required. And so, as we were touching on earlier, it's just sad to me that this has become such a stumbling block for so many religions to just say faith only. It's very convenient, but you just can't read the Bible, not just the passages we talked about, but like we said, just read the book of Acts. And it's always, it's just crystal clear. Baptism is required. And as we've observed in, throughout the podcast today, in many ways, when Protestants did their thing, if you will, in trying to reform the Catholic Church with its abuses, with its emphasis received on works swinging the pendulum all the way over to faith not works, adopting a lot of aspects of Calvinism that says there's nothing you can do for your salvation, it's up to God to save you, that once he's saved you, there's nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. You wrap all that together, and you have a, a lot of groups that are, that are teaching a way to heaven that isn't in alignment with what the scriptures teach. So, Brian, I guess you got the last one. Also from Cain, looks like he submitted several different questions. Here, here's another batch. The name of my girlfriend's church is Missionary Baptist Church. Does the Bible say that the church Jesus built should wear his name? So that's the first question. Second question, what does this Bible say about the use of instruments in worship? I've done a little homework. I've not come across anything that says to use instruments. I have not come across anything that says to use instruments, but I've not found anything that says not to. So you got, you know, kind of two questions you can deal with there, Brian. Yeah, good questions. In fact, that very last statement, he hasn't found anything that says not to. Can you imagine how large the Bible would be? 
if it had to tell us everything not to do, right? But yes, when it comes to the name and what name should the church have for talking about the church that we read about in the Bible, it is Christ's church, and so it should bear his name. And so that's why we see, for instance, in Romans 16, verse 16, it says, the churches of Christ salute you, right? So we have the church of Christ mentioned there. We also have the church of God that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. That would also be an acceptable name. When it comes to the Baptist church, if you look at the history of the Baptist church, it was formed by John Smith in 1607 in London. So, you know, just logically being 1600 years after, I guess, 1500 years right after the first century, it can't be the church that we read about in the New Testament. And so, you know, when we think about some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast, like not just the name, but what they believe and espouse, like, for instance, their belief in Calvinism and important doctrines like baptism, well, it also tells us that it can't be the church that we read about in the New Testament. So that's that's the name part of the question. The second one about the use of instruments in worship, well, the Bible, as we've touched on already, of course, is that, you know, tells us that we are to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And we looked at earlier in the podcast, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, which both tell us that we are to, once again, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody in our heart to the Lord. So that makes it pretty clear. And as we touched on also, when the Bible tells us what should be done, it rules everything else out. And what trips people up also is that, once again, they look at the old law, they see things like musical instruments being used there, and what they fail to realize is that when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled that old covenant. We now live under the law of Christ today, so we cannot continue to practice anything that we find under the old law because that law is no longer in effect. And so this is just one of those situations, Jeff, where you know, once you find what the scriptures teach, you really need to abide by that. And then just don't allow yourself to start thinking about other possibilities because they've been ruled out once the Bible tells us what to do. And that's a good point that we haven't spent a, a whole lot of time on. And that's how to deal with the scriptures when they're silent, when they don't cover a topic. I think Luther, if I remember correctly, took the position that silence allows, silence permits, that unless it's expressly prohibited, the Bible allows it. Uh, there was another person kind of after that that took the opposite position of, no, you need to go to the Bible to find out what is authorized, and that the silence of the scriptures do not authorize, they restrict. And, you know, we can kind of see that principle even in the Bible itself. Uh, if you go to Hebrews chapter 7, where it talks about the uh, priesthood, you know, the old, uh, under the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, and talking about the change to the priesthood, and Jesus being a new priest. Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken pertain to another tribe, Jesus being of the tribe of Judah, of which no man gave attendance at the altar, you know, under the law of Moses. Especially Hebrews 7, verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, you know, the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Moses said, the priests have to be from Levi. Did Moses have to say, and not from the tribe of Judah, and not from the tribe of Reuben, and not from the tribe of Simeon, and not from the tribe of Issachar? Well, no. See, even the Bible even acknowledges that silence does not permit, silence does not allow that silence restricts when God tells us something to do. That's right. Very good point. Well, before, uh, Jeff, you point folks back to the website, I'd just like to say that we hope that you find this series of studies beneficial. As we said in our first and second podcast, you know, our goal isn't necessarily to call out groups and disparage the name. We simply want to examine what they teach and compare it to what the Bible says. And so in our next episode, we're going to look at cults and all the different beliefs as it relates to cults and what cults are and kind of dig into once again what they believe and compare it to god's word so we certainly hope you'll join us for that and jeff i'll turn it over to you all right so as we always like to do for more supplemental material at our website under the topical index i mean considering the breadth of topics we've been talking about today i got a lot of references for you just as a sampling a for authority 
E for Bible origins and especially B for baptism. C for church, the true. E for denominationalism. I for infant baptism. M for music. O for obedience. P for Protestantism. A lot of good material with scripture references. We would strongly encourage our listeners to dig into, especially if you're a member of one of the religious groups we've been talking about today. Please don't automatically shut down. Please don't automatically dismiss what we've been saying, but actually, you know, dig into the scriptures to compare and contrast what your particular religious group teaches versus what the Bible teaches and be willing to search and accept the truth of what the scripture has says. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.